Glad you're here. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the 21st chapter of John, where we were reading before. And welcome to the Christmas season, or formally sometimes called Advent. It's here now, and we have a great opportunity, don't we, to kind of ask God to prepare our hearts as we think about the Christmas season coming and all that it means. Great songs this morning that sort of set that tone for us. We'll be getting to that in some messages, but not this morning. I want to continue on with what we have been looking at, at penetrating questions of Jesus. So let me bring your attention to the verse that is uh, in question this morning that has the text in it, and that would be verse number 5. Have a look at uh, John 21 and verse 5. Then Jesus saith unto them, Children, have ye any meat? They answered him, No. So let's have a word of prayer, and we'll look in today's message. Father, we are grateful for all that you've done for us. We're thankful for your watch care through this past week, whether we've traveled on the road, whether we've hunted, regardless of what we've been involved in. Thank you for your guardianship and protection of our lives. And Father, thank you for a church to be in on Sunday morning that believes and preaches God's word. And Father, we're just uh, anxious that you might suit a blessing for each of us here today. Because each of us, Lord, is a, is a needy person. If we know you, we're nevertheless needy. If we don't know you, we have the greatest need, the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. And thank you that we can emphasize the fact that his coming was for that purpose in order that he might die on the cross of Calvary and shed his precious blood in order that the way of redemption might be made available for us. And thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you. We can know that we're saved. Thank you that we can call ourselves a child of God this morning through faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you that we can know of a sure and certain future that Jesus is coming again and that he's gone to prepare a place for us. And Lord, as we wait upon you now and as we uh, live our lives on this earth, as we look for those opportunities of service that we have, as we raise our children, as we are involved in church, as we have our jobs, as we interact with people, help us to be faithful in our service. Help us to be looking for the opportunities that you provide. And pray that you just bless us now as we consider God's word this morning and may it be a blessing and a help to our lives, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have two or three at the most, so two or three at the most, third one maybe. We have one today and one another time and one another time, maybe the other time, the third time. We'll see. I, I need to just continue to pray about it and see how much time we want to take for doing some things for Christmas. But at any rate, here on the first Sunday of December, we're going to look at this next of the penetrating questions of Jesus, which you find there in uh, verse number five, as I mentioned a moment ago. The Bible tells us in verse number 14 that this is now the third appearance of Jesus to his disciples. And in consideration of that, we find a story that is, uh, bears a lot of resemblance to one that we have earlier. We'll talk about that more in a moment in Luke chapter 5. But Jesus sees the disciples there on that morning along the shore of Galilee. And he says to them, our version translates this, children, have ye any meat? And uh, sometimes that's curious to us because these were grown men, so we think, well, did he really call them children? And what you have to realize, of course, is, is that the modern English equivalent of that expression there would be something like boys or lads. So he calls out to them like that, and he says, boys, uh, do you have any meat? And then the other word that maybe is interesting in this is we tend to think more specifically the English word meat. We're thinking of venison or we're thinking of uh, a steak or something like that. When in reality, the word is more general, it means food. Do you have any food? But it's actually a word that is slightly more specific than just the general word for food. It's a word that points to fish. And so Jesus says, boys, and in so many words, have you been successful? Did you catch anything last night? 
And uh, I, I don't know, I feel sorry for people who don't find some humor in the Bible because when I think about this question, I want to go a different place with this, but I have to tell you this. I always think to myself, that, that's, a, that's a really rough question. I mean, it's like, you know, you've been out there hunting all day and maybe the weather conditions aren't the greatest in the world and you haven't seen any deer and you get home and the first thing somebody wants to know is, did you get anything? And, you know, you're thinking, <laughs> you know, like that, you know, just, I didn't really need to hear that right then. And I was always so grateful when I would come in from, from hunting. My wife never did that to me. I mean, you, usually the word got to her before I did if, if I were successful. If, if I, I wasn't successful, she just waited for me to tell her how it went. But, you know, that had to hit them kind of hard. Hey, boys, did you have any success? They were out there all night. That's worse than all day, don't you think? They were out there all night. And th so their answer is kind of human and kind of humorous, but you have to sort of feel for them in a lot of ways. No. <laughs> I mean, it was a tough question, but Jesus had a real point for asking that. And at first, if you read this story, it's a familiar story to us, but at first as you read this, you may think to yourself, well, really, really going to have a message on that text? I mean, probably that's just kind of a minor conversational detail. I mean, the story is about the fact that they were fishing, and the story is about the fact that they didn't have any success. And this is just kind of a minor conversational detail that we might be tempted just to gloss right over and not really think about the... Uh, the, the seriousness of it or the importance of it there. Um, but really, if we take heart to that verse that we saw in verse 14, I mentioned that a moment ago. Let me ask you to look back there again now. It says, this is now the third time that Jesus showed or manifested himself to his disciples after that he was risen from the dead. Well, I don't think that leaves us the luxury. In fact, I don't really think we have the luxury, period, of just uh, relegating things to minor unimportant details. We have to ask ourselves why God chose to include those things. But in this case in particular, I mean, obviously there are going to be times when there are details that are given that maybe don't seem to be as significant as other details, but you need them just to flesh out the story. But in this case, if John is led by the Holy Spirit to take the trouble to point out that this is the third time, and of course the context of that is what you find in John's Gospel, because before this, you have the two other times, three really if you count the appearance to Mary Magdalene, but we won't consider Mag Mary Magdalene unimportant at all, but she's not the disciples, and so you have to pick up on that detail. But if you go back to John chapter 20, you'll find that same day, the same uh, Easter Sunday morning, he appeared to them in the evening. Remember that? We, I don't think we need to go back and look at it just now. And then eight days later, he appeared to them again. Thomas was present that time, so he's coming to to take care of business with Thomas, just like he's coming now to take care of business with Peter. And that's really what's going on here. So the question becomes important, and I think the more we, we realize that this was purpose, all of this was very purposeful. He asked that question because he wanted to focus on something, and then he wanted to direct a message, and especially to Peter. But what I would like to talk to you about this morning in the message is leadership. You know, of course, without reading into what I'm saying, that Peter was really the leader of the disciples. We know that to be true. Some people get skittish when you start talking about that because they think, oh, no, we're confusing this with Roman Catholicism. No, we aren't. We, 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 don't, we don't say that Peter's the first pope. But at the same point, we don't need to let somebody who goes way to an extreme with something keep us from seeing something that really is in the Bible. And Peter was their leader, and I think what you have here is a lesson in leadership, and that's the subject that I want to talk to you about this morning, the subject of leadership. 
So first of all, I'm going to ask my own set of questions, and we're going to talk about the question that Jesus asked, but I want to ask my own set of questions, two to sort of lead up to the third one, which really is where we're going to spend our time. So we're going to talk about leadership this morning. What is leadership? How would you define leadership? Well, I'm going to give you something so simple that none of us can run from it. And the reason that I say that is because most of the time when we bring up the subject of leadership, the majority of the audience or the majority of people just immediately excuse themselves and say, well, I'm not a leader. I'm not an officer in the service. I'm not an officer in the church. I'm not a teacher in the school. I'm just a student. I'm not a Sunday school teacher in the church. And there is a sense, of course, in which that's true. I mean, we do have certain positions of leadership that we all know about. But when you think about leadership in the broadest sense, how might you define that? And I'll give you something that will leave us where we can't escape, and it's true. And that is, just think of leadership as influence. And the moment you realize that leadership is influence, then you realize you really can't excuse yourself from this because everyone may not have a position of leadership but everyone has some amount of influence. And why that fits this is because Peter has a lot of influence here, and that's what we're going to talk about. Peter's their leader. He is in a position of leadership, but beyond that, he's like you and me. He has a great deal of influence over these other men. Everyone has some influence. I found a little humorous, the story about the young girl that decided to apply for college, so she wrote her letter off to college, and uh, she was going fine, feeling encouraged as she filled out the application, until she got down to a particular question, and this question read, are you a leader? So she thought about that. She didn't really consider herself to have that particular personality or those gifts, and she didn't know anything else to do but to answer the question honestly, so she put no and returned the application. Well, she was somewhat surprised a few weeks or days later to get a letter back from the college. Here's what it said. Dear applicant, a study of the application form reveals that this year our college will have 1,452 new leaders. We are accepting you because we feel it is imperative that they have at least one follower. Well, you have uh, some interesting things going on. Her humble evaluation of herself, and perhaps her accurate evaluation of herself, was true in the formal sense, right? But not necessarily true in the broader or practical sense, because every one of us has a certain amount of influence, maybe some more than others, but we can't excuse ourselves from this topic because we all influence people. We're all parents or grandparents, or we have our peers. If we're not parents and grandparents, we have our friends. So all of us have a certain degree of influence. All right, here's the second question for us this morning. So that being the case that we say we're going to agree to talk about leadership this morning in the sense of influence, well, what is good leadership? Fair enough question. Um, do you know Friday night, I think they said it was, Bush 41 seems to be the easiest way to remember him, George Herbert Walker Bush. Um, our president, the 41st president, passed away. Um, sort of makes you remember those times if you were living then and went through and so forth. And uh, so if you were looking from an illustration from that uh, perspective, something popped into my mind. I, I've always sort of enjoyed politics, and you just have to try to stay out of too much of that in the pulpit. But this one's just a story, so I think we can use this. But do you remember when Ronald Reagan, of course, uh, George Bush, 
Bush 41 served as his vice president for the two terms that Ronald Reagan was president. And Ronald Reagan was elected in the fall of 1980. And Ronald Reagan was preceded by, of course, Jimmy Carter. And I don't know what you think about him, but it seemed like he had a hard time getting a whole lot accomplished. And we had a difficult time during those years of his presidency. Do you remember, uh, it was Jimmy Carter's own phrase when he talked about the malaise. Do you remember that? He talked about the economic malaise that seemed to grip us. And uh, so that's a little uh, insight into those times. When he got ready to run for re-election, a man by the name of Ronald Reagan came along and he used to, to uh, devastating effect a question that he repeated over and over and over again in his campaign stump speeches, and that was, are you better off today than you were four years ago? Do you remember that? And what he was really reflecting on is the fact that, you know, well, there's leadership, there's good leadership, and there's not so good leadership. And that was his take on it. I don't mean to tramp on your toes if you're a Carter fan. That's, that's not what I'm trying. I'm simply trying to illustrate that there is leadership, there's both good and bad leadership, and Ronald Reagan certainly used that phrase to point that out and, and had a devastating effect with that. So obviously this morning our interest is not so much political as much as it is spiritual, right? That's really what we're studying here this morning. Our interest is spiritual more than it is political, although it would be really nice to have good political leaders. But nevertheless, that's not the message today. So let's define good spiritual leadership and do this. Using your influence, to encourage, uh, to encourage others to know and follow God's will. Okay, so what have we done so far? We've said leadership is influence. Everybody has some. How are you using yours? To encourage other people to find and follow God's will or not? To encourage other people to find and follow God's will or not? in some other way. And so now we come to the question that we really want to talk about this morning, and that's Peter. Was his leadership good or bad? Considering what we've said so far, leadership is influence. Peter certainly had it. Good leadership, good spiritual leadership, is encouraging other people to find and follow the will of God for their lives. How did Peter do on this particular occasion? Well. What's the proposition? Verse number three is really where we see the leadership of Peter occur, good or bad. You can kind of think about this as we develop it a little bit. But the scene starts for us, and it says Jesus appeared to them by the, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. We know that they had been out fishing. And before that happens, though, Simon says to the others, and there are at least seven of them here that are mentioned in verse number two, I'm going fishing. I'm going fishing. Now, did he have influence? Look at the next phrase. They say unto him, we're going too. You see what I'm talking about? I mean, we're not given a whole lot of preparatory detail to this, only that Peter just seems to get this idea, this thought, this inspiration all of a sudden. I'm, I'm, I'm going fishing. Oh, well, we'll go with you. Well, there's certainly a bunch of followers within that apostolic company, weren't they? And Peter certainly had a great deal of influence. In fact, I really think chapter 21, and this is something maybe for your later Bible study and when we get to this other message, whether it's next Sunday or a different time, um, on 
the remaining part of chapter number 21. There's another question there that we'll see in verse number 15. But Peter is really, this chapter is really all about Peter. Because Peter's the focus in this first part of the chapter where we have the first story about how Jesus appeared to them after that unsuccessful night of fishing. But then in verse 15 it says, Then he turned, so when they had dined, then Jesus focuses on Peter a second time. And he has business, unfinished business with Peter over the three times that Peter denied him. So this chapter in a lot of ways is all about Peter. He was their leader. He's the primary focus in both of the stories. So his proposal is that they go fishing, and they readily agree to that. On the surface, it seems very harmless. After all, Peter was a fisherman by trade, was he not? And there's nothing you may say. Maybe this is what you think. Maybe you've read this story lots of times before. There's nothing you may say that really indicates that there was anything harmful. It just seems innocent enough. It seems harmless enough. They had time, why not go fishing? But there are a lot of things, I think, to consider in the story, and I think you've heard me talk about this enough, especially in this e these evening messages about Abraham and so forth, and being very careful. Sometimes you get um, commentators and sometimes you get preachers who uh, see what they think is a good sermon, and they sort of build that sermon on something you really can't prove. And if you don't really have evidence to indicate that the conclusion you're coming to is probably the right way to go, it might be better just not to, to preach that particular sermon because uh, I always think about it this way as uh, a preacher, you know, one day you're going to see all these people in heaven. How much apologizing are you going to have to do? Do you ever think about that? Or you teach all these Sunday school lessons and talk about all these people, and I, I you know, Peter is one of the examples I like to always use it, all these people that constantly talking about Peter as if, all Peter needed to do was open his mouth so that he could exchange feet. And I have always, that just that kind of thing just makes my skin crawl when I realized that Peter was just like the rest of us, and Peter had his shortcomings, so did David, but Peter was mightily used of God, and he was the one. Nobody had it said to him by Jesus Christ, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Can't take that away from him. Can't do that. Just can't go there just because the Roman Catholics go way further with it than what they should go. Can't take that away from Peter. No one else walked on the water. So we really have to be kind of careful about these things. So I want to give you some things to consider. And uh, is Peter's example a good example? That's, that's kind of what I, how I really want to develop this for us. Um, I don't know if you know this or not. Um, you may not have had any reason to come across any of his writings. On the other hand, you might have. But there is a, a, a prominent evangelical writer who's kind of known as a, well, I don't know if anybody calls him this, this would be my way of putting it, he's kind of like a leadership guru. His name is John Maxwell. And he has something quite interesting to say about good leadership in terms of one's example. And I like this. I think he really pegs it when he says this. He says, a leader is one who knows the way, goes the way, and shows the way. That's not bad, really. A leadership, a good leader is one who knows the way, goes the way, and shows the way. So he's a discipler as well. His example and his influence are good in a spiritual sense. So let's take a look at this proposal of Peter's and see what we come up with here. Like I said, to some people it might seem harmless, but I think there are some details here that might sort of 
lead us to a different conclusion. First of all, I think maybe one of the most important observations, I think I may have alluded to it earlier, is that this story that we have here, it bears striking resemblance to the story that we have earlier in Luke chapter 5. In fact, I'm going to give you some of these details in a few moments, but folks, I really believe when you get down later into the story and uh, look at verse 7, therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved, who's that? John, right? He's the writer. All right, so that disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, it is the Lord. Now, how did he get that? In fact, this is really interesting in the light of turning back to chapter number 20. And uh, we saw this earlier when we were back looking at that chapter. Um, and John is the first one to figure out that the evidence of those grave clothes that they saw, even though Peter had seen it, Peter went in and saw it, John did not. But Peter was the first one to really figure it out. Verse 8 says, Then went in also that other disciple, that's John, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. Read the next verse. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Now, he was not only faster. John was not only faster than Peter afoot. Because if you remember when we were there, and I pointed that out to you too, he, <laughs> Peter, or, uh, Peter must have been a, a lumberer maybe. I don't know. John was, maybe he was younger. But John was more fleet of foot. He also seems to have been um, a little more spiritually intuitive, at least certainly in these examples. How in the story in John chapter 1 did he figure this out? And he, sure, he certainly got to that conclusion before Peter did. And I rather believe that the reason for that is, is that he saw in this those parallels to what happened in Luke chapter 5, and he figured it out. I don't mean to divorce the Holy Spirit from this, but I really believe that it just dawned on him, this looks like, this sounds like, this is the Lord. So do you remember that story? Luke chapter 5 gives it to us where uh, there's a great multitude there, and Jesus is along the shores of um, the Lake of Gennesaret. That's the, that's the Sea of Galilee. And there's really not enough room for Jesus to do this in a very efficient way, so Peter's boat is there, and there's some other boats there. Remember, they had been in the fishing business. And uh, so he gets into Peter's boat, and he has them have take the boat out a little bit from the land. If you want to be looking at this, you can. It's in Luke chapter 5, the first 11 or 12 verses. But, and so he does his preaching, he does his teaching, and then when that's done, it's time to turn himself to the disciples, and he says, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draft. Well, who's the one who responds to that? Peter is. Peter says, Master, we've toiled all night and taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, you can almost kind of sense how we would be. Okay, <laughs> if, if you insist, we'll do it. <laughs> and then they enclose that great multitude of fish. And remember, the nets broke. And they were trying to drag that to the shore. And... Peter um, ultimately ends up uh, telling the Lord, depart from me, for I, am a, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. So what are the commonalities that we have between these stories? Well, first of all, you've got a night spent fishing that's fruitless. You've got labor expended in vain till Jesus intervenes. When you cast the net at his direction and not your own, 
which is kind of the moral, if you will, of the story. When we're following the Lord, when we're walking in fellowship with the Lord, when we're doing things his way and at his command, when he intervenes like that, well, his blessing is also there. In this particular case, in this story here, 153, John even gives us the number and says they were big ones. <laughs> That's our terminology. It's just great fishes, so we'd say big ones. Big ones, 153 of them. So the, the common elements, and then you have Peter's embarrassment. Now, I think it's important to realize that Peter's embarrassment on the other occasion seems to fit very well. He just, he falls, the Bible tells us there he falls at Jesus' knees, and he's, he's uh, you know, I sort of depicted maybe how some of his emotions were running. He wasn't real eager to do this, and Jesus demonstrated uh, that if you follow his guidance and his direction, he blesses, and so he feels somewhat contrite, and he falls at Jesus' knees and says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. But in this particular case, it almost seems like the reaction is overblown. The Bible says that he girt his fisher's coat about him and threw himself into the sea, and we have the detail in the verse, for he was naked. Now, probably you shouldn't, it is the word for naked, but probably you shouldn't think about it there like something immodest is going on. He's probably just, our expression might be stripped to the waist, something like that. That's why when it says he girt his fisher's coat to him, then he would have been in what he considered to be a little more presentable to, uh, shape. But there's, there's nothing wrong. People do that from time to time, uh, especially a context of men working. Sometimes that happens. And so that's kind of what's going on. But to cast himself into the sea, wouldn't it have been just enough to remedy the problem by putting his fisher's coat about him, why did he cast himself into the sea? You see what I'm trying to get at here? It's almost as if, it's almost as if Peter's feeling a little something, almost like he's feeling a little bit guilty. Why would he have been feeling a little bit guilty? Well, he might have been feeling a little bit guilty if what was going on here was not just a simple diversion, not just some time for relaxation, but, well, we know Peter was... Um, an impetuous person, right? That was just his personality. And, uh, but we also see maybe here the slightest hint of the fact that maybe Peter has just sort of grown restless. Why would he be embarrassed? Well, again, we go back to the fact that John says this is now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples. In the other times, what had Jesus done? Well, in the first one, which is really the instrumental one, Let's turn back to that page for a moment to John chapter 20 and have a look at this. What, it says, verse 19, the same day at even being the first day of the week when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and sighed. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Now, so what's the purpose of this appearance going to be? We're going to keep reading about it. Then said Jesus unto them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father sent me, even so send I you. Let me make a statement. You tell me if it's true or false. The Great Commission is in all four Gospels. True or false? Ah, oh, you don't want to vote. <laughs> you're afraid you're going to... Yeah, the answer is true. And we have different words and we have different degrees of fullness of the Great Commission. It's just that when people say the Great Commission, most of the time we think of Matthew 28 
18 through 20. But Mark just says, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's the Great Commission, isn't it? And Luke's gospel, you actually have more. And then you have something very brief here, but this is basically what it is. As my Father has sent me, so send I you. And now notice, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. There's another interesting question. This, this would be, um, if you really want some um, high-powered words that won't mean a thing to you, this is what interpreters would call a crux interpretum. That's Latin. Why they would call it that is, is because what's going on here? He breathes on them and says, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. What happened? Because the Spirit didn't come until the day of what? Pentecost. So you can wrestle with that a little bit. I don't want to um, bother you if you have different thoughts about this. But I'll tell you, more than likely what this is is a symbolic type of thing. He's reminding them that he's going to send the promise of the Father and this is, so he's given them this commission. He's told them, as my Father has sent me, so send I you. And then he reminds them that he has previously promised that he is going to send the Holy Ghost. And then, let's turn now to Luke chapter 24 and look at where we have more details of the Great Commission given in Luke's Gospel. And... Now you'll kind of see all of this come together. You kind of have to take all the passages, put them together, and do the best you can to come up with something that honors them all. So watch this now. Verse 36, it starts, And as they thus spoke, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said unto them, Peace be unto you. This is that scene in John 20 that we looked at. This is Luke's account of it. They were terrified. We saw that earlier too. He said unto them, Why are ye troubled, and why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, see that it is I myself. Handle me, and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as ye see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. Now something really interesting happens in the next verse. He actually asks them the same question, at least in English, that he does in our text this morning. Look at this. And while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said unto them, Have ye any meat? Now, the purpose here is different. He wants to eat in front of them to show them that he's real. So the purpose is a little different here, but it's just kind of interesting that you have that question occurring again. See, this is John figuring out, this is the Lord, based on all these different things. Then it says in verse 42, And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and of and honeycomb, and he took it and did eat before them. And he said unto them, These are my words which I spoke unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me, so forth and so on. And then he opened their understanding uh, that they might understand the scriptures. And then he said this, Thus it is written and thus it behooved. Thus it was necessary is what that means. For Christ to suffer and to rise again the third day and that repentance and remission of his sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning in Jerusalem, and ye are witnesses of these things. There's the Great Commission in Luke. Now look at the next verse. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. If this is the same occasion as what we saw in John 20, which it is, and it says he breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit, but told them to wait in Jerusalem, until they were endowed with power from on high. See what I'm talking about? You kind of have to put this together and do the best you can. But when you do that, I think you're probably your better conclusion is to come up with the fact that he was simply doing something in, a, in an illustrative manner 
in John chapter 20 to assure them that the Holy Spirit was in fact coming. And he talked about this back in John 14, 15, and 16. He mentioned the Holy Spirit on all three occasions in that upper room discourse and told them he was going not to leave them alone. He was going to send them another comforter, remember? And he's reiterating that here. But the only thing that's tough about this is, what does he say you have to do? Now, by the way, John 21 is in Galilee. He says you're going to wait in Jerusalem. Well, I'll tell you what's hard to do is the tarry part. Forget that. <laughs> Did you ever notice that tarry part is not so good? I mean, you know, wait is a four-letter word, and so is tarry. If that tarry, tarry's five. But it's still not good either way, right? Wait. How good are you at waiting? I'm lousy. But I think that we learn more and more as we go along. So now you begin to kind of put all this together and you see Peter and what God has really told them to do is he, he's told them, look, it's going to be, you're going to have to tarry a little bit. And he reiterates what the commission is. He, he reiterates what it is he wants them to do. It has nothing to do with fishing. They've already long since forsaken those nets or supposed to have and follow him in in these other appearances, we didn't talk about the second one, which was the same, except that Thomas was there eight days later. He's reinforcing that. He's saying, here's what's going to happen. I'm, I'm alive now. I'm risen from the dead. He continued with them 40 days in his post-resurrection ministry. They didn't have that long. It wasn't that bad. Ten days later, on the day of Pentecost, Penta, 50, 50 days, the Holy Spirit came. But what he tells them to do is, you've got this commission, you're witnesses. As my Father hath sent me, so send I you. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel, but tarry in Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. Well, that waiting proposition isn't so easy, is it? And sometimes we don't do so well. And I kind of think this is one of those occasions where maybe Peter, impetuous by nature, got restless and just, we all do this. We've talked about this as we looked at those messages about Abraham and Sarah. Uh, they got restless. They had long periods of waiting. They got discouraged. One of the things they came up with was, well, maybe we better help God. And really, the will of God for Peter and the others was not to go, those of them who had been fishermen, was not to go back to the old life. It was to keep it right before their eyes, the new life. It was to follow through on what they had said they were going to do before when they forsook those notes and those, those nets. And in the Luke 5 again, where all those parallels occur, you might notice that that story ends when Peter casts himself at Jesus' knees and says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Jesus encourages him and says, fear not, Peter, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. And I tell this on Peter just because I see the same thing in me and I'm sure you see the same thing in you. Very difficult sometimes. Do you know the name of the English expositor G. Campbell Morgan? He was talking about this uh, waiting matter. He has a very interesting definition. He says this, waiting for God is not laziness. Waiting for God is not going to sleep. Waiting for God is not the abandonment of effort. Waiting for God means first activity under command. 
Second, readiness for any new command that may come. And third, the ability to do nothing until the command is given. Whoa, that's the hard one, isn't it? <laughs> the ability to do nothing until the command is given. Vance Havner, maybe you know his name too, the Southern Baptist minister that was famous for so many quotations and, and pithy ways of putting things. He said this, a leader is a person with a magnet in his heart and a compass in his head. And so I guess what I'm suggesting here is are there those times, as perhaps there was here with Peter, when we have the compass in our head but not the magnet in our heart? And waiting can be hard, very hard. I like the story about a Far East emperor. I really don't know whether this is true or not, but it's a good story. And he was getting older, so he realized that the time was coming very soon that he would have to pick a replacement. He somehow felt that he was going to do something different, and instead of picking one of his sons necessarily, or even someone who was, well, like we might say in his cabinet, some other person in, in his higher levels uh, and positions of government around him, he decided he was going to call in the young people of the kingdom, and he was going to choose his successor from the young people of the kingdom. So he called in. The kids were, of course, shocked. They couldn't believe that he was going to do that. And he said, well, here's what we're going to do. He had them all there, ever how many responded to this. And he said, here's what we're going to do. He said, uh, I'm going to give each of you a seed today, a special seed. And he said, what I want you to do is take that seed back and go home and plant the seed, water it, take care of it and do that for a year, and in a year I'm going to have you all back and we'll take a look at the plants and I'll announce who's going to be the next emperor of the kingdom from there. Well, there was this one boy, uh, his name was Ling, and of course, like all the other boys, he was really excited about this, couldn't believe that they received this invitation from the emperor, and not only couldn't believe he'd received it, but came home with the seed, showed it to his mom and said, this is all I got to do, plant this seed. So his mom encouraged him, and they got a pot, and they planted the seed in the pot, and he looked in on it every day. He watered it, and he had a really difficult experience because he got to three weeks and nothing was there. And he kept looking, you know, for something green to come up, and nothing green ever came up. It got to four weeks, nothing. It got to five weeks, nothing, nothing, nothing. And he's really discouraged about the thing. He feels like a complete failure. Six months go by. Still, there's nothing in his pot. And he just figures that he must not have a green thumb. He's totally killed this thing, and he's going to be in trouble. He's going to be highly embarrassed or in trouble. Finally, it comes to the end of the year, and so all of the youths of the kingdom go to report, and they come in with their plants, and Ling didn't want to go. Well, you could understand why, and his mother said, no. She said, you, you really should go. Go ahead and go. Take your pot with you. She said, you've done the best you possibly could. Nothing to be ashamed about. Just go ahead and go. Well, he had this sinking feeling in his stomach about what was going to happen. And sure enough, when he got there, all these other kids had their pots. They had amazing, uh, some had flowers, some had like shrub-looking things, some had plant, tr tree-like plants growing up. And they were just, you know, and all the other kids kind of looked at him, saw his empty pot, and just kind of looked like, you know, nice try, huh? Well, the emperor got there, and he surveyed the room, and he said, my, if we just have such an uh, abundance, a, a variety of different uh, flowers and trees and plants here today, and today one of you is going to be appointed the next emperor. And he's scanning the audience. All of a sudden, he sees Ling in the back with his empty pot. 
he sends his guards to go back and get Ling and have him brought up front. Well, he says, Ling says to himself, I know it. You know, he's going to be either really berated or else maybe even killed. And he says, the emperor says to him, he says, what is your name? He says, my name is Ling. All the other kids are kind of looking around and making a little bit of some of their snide remarks and so forth. And finally, he looked at Ling, he looked at the audience, and he said, here's your next emperor. His name is Ling. Well, the emperor continued, see, he said, a year ago today, he said, I gave each of you a seed, told you to plant the seed and then come back in a year. But he said, see, I gave you special seeds. He said, they were all boiled. Not a one of them would have grown anything. But he said, all of you are here today with your flowers, shrubs, or trees, which means that Ling was the only one who had the courage and honesty to bring me a pot with my seed in it. The rest of you substituted a different seed. And so he said to them, here's the one who will be your next emperor. Well, beloved, see, sometimes waiting doesn't seem to make much sense, and sometimes it's very difficult to do. But God always blesses us when we have the desire, the patience, and the courage to wait on him until he really makes known to us what it is he wants. This is a little bit, to take a word from Sunday evening, this is a little bit, I think, of a misstep. This is a little bit of a swoon on Peter's part. That's why he's so embarrassed about this thing. That's why he realizes that he's given... He's given way to those tendencies to be fidgety, to be restless, and even has proposed this course of action now to the others that ultimately proves to be fruitless. And Jesus comes and is so gentle about the thing. But when it's all over with, and we'll see this when we look at the next one, he still has unfinished business with Peter. Beloved, how would I sum this up? Well, I guess I would say that Influence is a powerful thing. And if leadership is influence, it's certainly something God wants us to take as a stewardship and use for his honor and glory. I would say one last thing by way of conclusion. It would simply be this. You know, whether you look at this negatively or positively, you don't have to go out and be a real bum or do something really evil to be a poor influence. But the same is also true about being a good influence. If you're not the president of the United States or you're not the general in the army or whatever and have a, a very high profile um, position of leadership, it still doesn't mean that you can't accomplish things for the Lord. And with that, I want to tell you a story I'm fond of. And I think the reason that I'm fond of it is because it's similar to something that happened to me as a, as a young man in, in uh, well, probably middle school years. But this concerns a woman by the name of Geraldine Brooks. And probably most people here haven't heard that, that name before, but she won the 2006 Pulitzer Prize for her fiction novel that was called March, like the month, March. Her love for books, if you listen to her story and she tells it, her love for books was nurtured by a woman she never met. That woman's name was Althea Glasby. Well, how did, the, how did it happen that she was so influenced by this lady? Well, 
One day, Geraldine's grandfather, Althea Glaspie, was his friend, and they were talking, and the grandfather just sort of mentioned to her how he had this little granddaughter, and she just was really fond of books. It wasn't very long after that that every Christmas and every birthday, she would receive a parcel in the mail from this woman she'd never met before, Althea Glaspie. And it would be a, a beautiful book, and inside she would have, in a very flowing kind of an elegant hand, she would have written in the book uh, something to Geraldine Brooks about, to Geraldine with love, Althea Glaspie. Never could quite figure out why the lady had done that. She never met her. She had no idea what inspired the woman to start sending her these books, but this is what she had to say about it later. I have no idea why this woman spent so much time and thought on a child she didn't know. Whatever the reason, I wish I could thank her in person. I wish I could tell her how those books shored up a love for the written word that grew over time into a career and a calling. I would like to give her one of the books I've written. Nice, hardback first edition. The signature wouldn't be as fine and fluid as hers, but in my own pedestrian scrawl, I would say thank you for the gifts that helped me to lead me to a life in books. See, you don't have to have a big title. You don't have to be someone special. You just have to realize the principles that we're talking about this morning, that leadership is influence. And you don't have to be a big wig to have a big effect. We just have to all be encouraged by what Jesus ultimately told them all, but Peter in particular. We need to be brought back to this every time we kind of get a little... Um, Aside from it, like Peter, we have a little moment of weakness and kind of digress a little bit from the task that's really at hand. You notice what he brought him back to here was the same thing he kept bringing him back to time after time after time. And it's general enough that it fits us all. Verse 19. This saying spake he signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, what's the next two words? Follow me. So a leader, a good leader, is one who knows the way, goes the way, shows the way. And by that definition, everybody here and be a good leader. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness. We think about this question, Lord, which was a pointed one.